Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Fighting and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Many people recognize that right now, certainly lots of legacy journalism operations have struggled over the past decade or so. Uh, we've written about this a lot on TechTurd, often highlighting how many of them were actually somewhat complacent during the rise of the internet and did little to understand, adapt, or innovate during that time. And then we're surprised when they realized that advertisers who relied, formerly relied on newspapers as the best way to reach certain communities found other, perhaps more efficient ways to reach those audiences. Unfortunately, rather than looking for ways to respond to that sort of competitive challenge, many news organizations have simply taken to blaming the internet as if they are owed a business model and owed it from the companies that more successfully innovated. And in part because policymakers are often beholden to support and endorsements from local news organizations, there's been something of a concerted global effort to pass laws around the world that simply require successful internet companies to hand over cash to struggling media organizations. This concept was pushed uh, in large part by Rupert Murdoch, uh, who always, which always struck me as uh, somewhat amusing, considering he spent decades screaming about the free market and against socialism. And this particular plan is literally having the government redistribute the wealth of successful companies to companies that have struggled. Uh, in some cases, the struggling companies being the ones owned by Rupert Murdoch. Uh, basically, all these laws and proposals boil down to the same basic concept, that big successful internet companies, namely Google and Meta, uh, in some cases named directly, uh, should be required to pay news organizations because they send traffic to those news sites. Now, you might recognize that sending traffic to a website seems like a beneficial thing, uh, and the media organizations themselves seem to implicitly agree, seeing as that they often work on search engine optimization and hire social media managers to try to get more traffic. But these, base, these plans and laws basically say that not only should Google and Facebook send them more traffic to their websites, but they should also be forced to pay for doing so. The most successful of these laws in terms of being passed and getting lots of attention, though it wasn't the first, uh, was put in place in 2021 uh, in Australia, where uh, Rupert Murdoch <laughs> certainly has tremendous sway and influence. Uh, but similar bills are appearing all over the place. Literally hours before we started recording this, Senator Amy Klobuchar here in the U.S. reintroduced her similar bill in the U.S. called the JCPA. And then meanwhile, up in Canada, there's a version being pushed strongly right now called C-18. Uh, and no one has been following C-18 as closely or as highlighting its many, many problems as much as Canadian law professor and open internet advocate Michael Geist. So I am pleased to have Michael on the podcast today to talk about these bills, in particular C-18. So welcome to the podcast. Well, Mike, thanks so much for having me. So uh, just to start out, can you explain what are the specifics of C-18? Some of these bills are, are kind of different in how they operate. And so what is C-18 and how is it set up? 
Sure. So I'll, I'll answer that, but but let me even back up just a little bit further sure. so people understand the the context in Canada. Um, like in many countries, media companies have been looking for support, and obviously we've seen some significant closures over time. We've seen some significant new media entities open up. The government's often loath to reference how many new startups have have occurred over the last <laughs> number of years. To, preferring to focus on how many have closed. But, you know, it, there's no question that it, it's been a tough time, certainly, for, for many entities. And so those entities, particularly the newspaper sector, started first by going to the government looking for tax support. And uh, they found a responsive government uh, who recognized that there were complications with respect to government getting directly engaged in funding the media. It may influence the kind of coverage mm -hmm. that you get. I think it does influence the coverage that you get. But nevertheless, they tried to carve out a number of different measures that included tax breaks for subscribers. So people who subscribe to digital papers get a bit of a tax break back. Uh, there's some funding for local journalism that takes place, uh, a local journalism fund. And in fact, uh, notably, and I think it was frankly a good program, the resulting work is supposed to be Creative Commons licensed. So it's supposed to be created and then openly available for other publications to use. And the, the most important one of these is uh, a tax system that allows for up to 25% back on uh, labor journalism costs. So, And this is available exclusively to a certain segment of the media in Canada known as Canadian Qualified Journalism Organizations. And there's some controversy associated with who qualifies and who doesn't, but mm -hmm. in event, that's what they established. So they started with that. Uh, but as the tide began to turn against big tech, and we've certainly seen that in countries around the world, and we've seen it in Canada with a number of different bills, uh, part of that broader program for the government was to launch into what I think is best seen as a essentially blame Google and Facebook for some of the, the woes of these large company of some of the media companies. And so to largely emulate what Australia has done by creating a framework where now a much larger segment of media organizations could be eligible for the system. It's not just newspapers, it's uh, broadcasters, radio, television, it's our public broadcaster. Uh, over time, and we can get into this, they've expanded it now to hundreds of broadcasters solely on the basis that they have a license, uh, not even with requirements to produce news, but they mm -hmm. become eligible news businesses as well. And the expectation is that they will seek to negotiate uh, some sort of agreement in terms of for, for payment. If they are unable to reach that agreement, it goes to a final offer arbitration system. And what becomes important in this legislation is, you know, what is there to be compensated for? And if we right. were talking about uh, copying a full text of articles and running ads against that one, might understand why there, there'd be a value in having some conversation. But the language that's used in the legislation is described as facilitating access to the news, which includes indexing it, ranking it, and quite clearly linking to it. And so at the end of the day, this is fundamentally about requiring payments for links. Right. And 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 this is important. And and you know, all along, ever since these these kinds of bills first started popping up around the globe, you know, I've referred to them as a link tax because fundamentally that's what they are. You know, the you know, you can look at at all the details and as you did, you break it down and you say, basically, this is this is paying to link. And so my general concern with these is that that fundamentally goes against the way the open Internet works. You can always link to someone without having to pay. Uh, and yet this is setting up a framework in which in which you have to actually pay. And whenever I say that, 
especially since Australia did their what they referred to it as the news bargaining code, um, people yell at me. It's not it's not a link text. Uh, and in fact, I, I wrote an article on TechDirt recently about C18 where I talked about the problems. And one of the um, main lobbyists in favor <laughs> of these bills. Uh, uh, yelled at me uh, on Twitter and said, you can't call it a link tax. Those words are nowhere in the bill. <laughs> so so uh, how, how do you respond to the, the people who insist that it is not a link tax because it is just trying to set up negotiations? Yeah. So I think there's a few issues there. I mean, sometimes the response is it's not a tax because it's not going into general government revenues. And so let's set aside, that seems to me to be a bit of semantics uh, yeah. at the end of the day. Yes, it is not a tax in the way that other taxes are where it's going to government, but in terms of the way it gets paid, it sure feels like a tax in terms of the the money, where that mo- how that money is being collected. More important though, is this question around linking. And, you know, f- Quite frankly, it, it's an absurd conversation to be having because there have been multiple conversations or multiple uh, m- there's multiple evidence to confirm that, in fact, this is quite clearly about links. Um, and best example would be from the government itself. During some of the hearings, there was a back and forth between the lead government bureaucrats. So we're not talking about politician now. We're talking about the, the lead official within Can- the Department of Canadian Heritage, which is responsible for this bill. And one of the members of parliament got into sort of a hypothetical saying, well, let's say someone posted something to Facebook about the news. Would mm-hmm. that would that post be scoped into the legislation? And the response from the government was no. They said, well, no, you, we're, we're not getting into the issue of uh, basic expression where someone just expresses themselves and it is not citing to or directly linking to the news. And she asked, I think, the natural follow-up and the natural follow-up was, well, what if they included a link? <laughs> and the response from the government was, well, then, yes, uh, uh, if you scope, if you included a link, it scopes it in. So we've had it from department officials. We also have under this legislation, under all legislation in Canada, something known as a charter statement. We have in Canada the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, part of uh, our constitution. And the government established a number of years ago a requirement that where it introduces new legislation, it will put forward a charter statement that sort of identifies or confirms that the legislation is compliant with basic charter rights. And so they've done that for C-18. And it includes specific reference to linking as being part of this legislation. In fact, I filed an access to information request, which would be the Canadian equivalent of a FOIA request, uh, seeking information on how this was crafted. And it turns out that the initial attempt from the department was not to include any reference to linking. But yet when it was reviewed by officials at Justice, they insisted before it was released that there be a clear reference to linking as being part of what um, that facilitating access to news is. So there simply isn't any doubt that linking is, is, is at the heart of this. And let's be clear, it doesn't apply to every link because it only applies to a certain subset of companies that are viewed to have uh, very dominant positions in the marketplace. So yes, it, it quite clearly does target Google and Facebook in, in this regard. But if you take the position that they're included in this, they've got to have something to talk about, something to negotiate about. What is the value that's being negotiated? And in fact, in many instances, there are already agreements between these companies and Google and Facebook where they use full text of the articles. And so right. we know what it's about. It's about the links because frankly, there really isn't anything else to negotiate about. 
Yeah. And, and, and that's, you know, in, in many ways, and, and there was a big discussion about this in the U.S. last year with, with the JCPA about how it, you know, in some sense, it's a, it's a copyright bill in disguise because we already have copyright. If, if you are posting significant amounts of an article or the entire article or something like that, you know, if it's just a headline and a snippet, that is covered in the U.S. by fair use. Um, and therefore, you know, what else could you possibly have have to negotiate about um and then the you know the other element that is concerning about this and and you mentioned it as in uh, uh in c18 and it's in uh jcpa and effectively in the australian news bargaining code as well is is the nature of the negotiation with this sort of arbitration backstop where you know again you know there's an argument that you as you're pointing out, like, what are you actually negotiating over? And there is an argument that, that Google and Facebook could go into this negotiation and say, you know, we're negotiating over links, links are free. So our offer is zero, um, <laughs> which I think is actually in some ways sensible, but because of the arbitration backstop, which is basically if the news organizations do not agree uh, to whatever Google and, and Meta offer, then they can go to arbitration where each side basically gets to put up an amount. In the U.S., we sort of refer to it as baseball-style arbitration, where each side puts up the amount that they want, and then the arbitrator just picks one. They can't they can't split it down the middle or anything like that. The arbitrator just decides, and then everybody is is bound to that. Um, and that creates some very weird incentives as as well. And so the the Canadian one is is the same sort of setup. Yeah, I'd love to jump in on at least a couple of things that you had to say sure. there. I I could start by saying, you know, we do have the Toronto Blue Jays. Um, yes, yes. Who are who are looking? Who are who actually? I think are really going to be really good this year. Go Jays! And so we also often refer to it as uh, baseball arbitration. Um, so, it, but but getting to the substance, I actually want to pick up for a sec on copyright and then get into the structure sure. of the of that arbitration system. There is quite notably a copyright provision in this legislation which specifically mm -hmm. seeks to exclude limitations and exceptions from the mm -hmm. consideration of the arbitration process. So essentially what it seeks to say is that, yeah, we recognize that what you are doing may be perfectly lawful under copyright, but we want to ensure that that doesn't matter, that you can't huh. say that, you know, all I'm doing is including a snippet or a link. This is clearly permissible in Canada. It would be fair dealing, uh, the equivalent of the U.S. fair use. And so the the notion that somehow this is offside copyright law, they know it's not. And in fact, they don't want the companies to be able to argue what we're doing is perfectly lawful from a copyright perspective. And so they are seeking to exclude it altogether. <laughs> I think that raises some really important questions about whether or not this legislation is consistent with international copyright obligations under the Berne Convention, which has yeah. a positive obligation to include a right of quotation. And essentially, we've got legislation that seeks to exclude a right of quotation from even this discussion. Somehow, it doesn't, you can't cite to that right as part of this discussion. I think that's, huh. that's, that's quite problematic. In terms of the ultimate process and where it goes, you're quite right. This ultimately um, is designed in a certain way to lead to uh, lead to this arbitration process or to to encourage, obviously, these sorts of agreements. It seems to me that based on what we've seen to date in Canada, while a parliamentar parliamentarians, officials are often prone to say, we need this, otherwise there's no incentive for the Googles and Facebooks of the world to negotiate. 
the reality is that it, the opposite is actually true at this stage. The, this has been structured in such a way that the kinds of promises that have been made to the media companies, the way the arbitration process is structured, which feels quite one-sided because, in fact, the panel can reject an offer if it doesn't achieve the government's policy goals. Um, hmm. There are basic criteria that are there. And so if the part of the government's objective is this, is what they would describe as a sustainable news, uh, news ecosphere, and part of that is funding from these two large U.S. companies, if they feel it's not good enough and won't achieve those objectives, technically the panel can simply say we we reject your we reject your offer altogether, and in a final offer arbitration process, the the media wins. So it seems to me that the incentives actually are for the media to push this to arbitration. Like they can negotiate right. a deal if they want, but they're likely to prevail in arbitration. It's why, of course, that pressures the two other companies either to up their offer as part of the negotiation, or as we have now seen in Canada, for both companies to consider the prospect of not linking. Because right. the way the legislation is set up is that you are subject to this framework really uh, in, under requiring at least two, two things. One, you've got to be what's known as a DNI, a digital news intermediary, which would be these large uh, entities and their criteria for how you, whether you qualify or how you qualify to be a DNI, and second, you've got to have some. You've got to do something that is facilitating access to the news. And so, right. if you have stopped the linking, well, you're allowed. You're allowed to be a DNI, but if you're not linking, then you are not subject to this framework. And that's precisely why uh, both of those companies have uh, have made st- have taken steps toward complying with the law by stopping to link. In the case of Google running a test for five weeks where they stopped linking to Canadian news for about 4% of the Canadian population users. And in the case of Facebook, Meta have been very consistent for months in making clear that if the legislation passes in its current form, they will stop news sharing in Canada. Yeah. And, and you know, there are a few different things to talk about there, which I think are, are really interesting, which is that, you know, in general, uh, you know, one of the effects of taxing something is you get less of it because companies or, or individuals try to avoid having to pay the tax. And so, therefore, this shouldn't be that surprising. And we know already that, you know, Spain, which passed one of the early versions of this kind of law, resulted in Google uh, stopping uh, Google News from working in Spain. Um, and that had a negative impact on on smaller news organizations, certainly. And we know that in Australia, when they passed their version of the bill, for a, a short while at least, Meta stopped allowing news links um, from appearing on Facebook. And it was interesting to me and it, it, it worried me a little bit that when Meta did that and sort of made that move, um, a lot of people, and I would say some some of it, uh, you know, was sort of pushed by the media and some of it was because people didn't fully understand what was going on. People got very, very mad. And, and the public reaction actually to Facebook stopping links was was pretty negative. And I, I tried to push back on that and said, you know, this is they're, they're responding exactly the way the incentives are structured in the law. If the Australian government didn't want that, <laughs> they should have changed the law. So I'm, I'm wondering, do you think that if Google and or Meta decide to go through with this and blocking links, um, blocking links to news in Canada, 
you know, is there a concern that there would be a backlash in that way? Obviously, the media would push for a backlash, but, you know, is there a concern that that could backfire? Well, we've already seen the uh, mm-hmm. response, quite frankly. And so uh, it started certainly with Google. They, they did not announce that they were running this test where they were mm-hmm. uh, removing the Canadian links. It was a journalist who noticed that when they were running uh, searches, the the kind of content that they would have expected to appear was not appearing and asked Google and Google said, yeah, that's what we're doing. And it huh. became, it became a, a, a pretty significant national story. And I think the lack of transparency left a lot of people really uncomfortable. Um, Google says, you know, this is how we run AB tests. Uh, they only really work if uh, people don't necessarily know, although we aren't trying, we w- wouldn't hide it in the sense that uh, we, we disclosed it once, uh, once they were in full, once it, this became uh, a question. Uh, but I think still that lack of transparency uh, has, I think, left a lot of people left a lot of people uncomfortable and I think pretty concerned with what they had done. Uh, and so that then led to a parliamentary hearing that where Google was pulled before committee. Uh, they wanted everybody right up to the CEO of Google to appear. Uh, that didn't happen. So they were unhappy with some of the people who did appear. <laughs> they asked for a lot of documents and Google didn't provide them with all the documents. And then just as that was taking place, Facebook have re-upped their their, essentially their statement by saying, having previously said that we'd consider not sharing, stopping to share Canadian news, uh, we now confirm that we will not share Canadian news. And so that then led to uh, demands for uh, an expanded uh, hearing. And that is, that is going to, to take place. And that, that's been an, an interesting process as uh, the government or the government's MPs vastly overreached, seeking not just you know, executives of the highest order to show up, but the, uh, a fishing expedition in documents going back years, quite literally, the initial proposal was for any documents, internal or external, including third-party correspondence, on any government, Canadian government regulation dating back to 2020. Hmm. Um, and it was, you know, I think almost immediately noted that they were talking about, uh, obviously, not just this bill, but a lot of other bills in there, uh, tax bills and privacy bills and a uh, bill known as Bill C-11 that's been uh, this very problematic and, and controversial involving regulating user content. And so suddenly you could have an individual creator who wrote to Google who appears on YouTube and and they would get swept into this. And all of this felt like retribution for their opposition to to this legislation. Um, journalists, of course, would be captured by this. And, and this would right. apply once you establish this kind of precedent. It's not just Google and Facebook's issue. It's any businesses issues, anyone who's got an interest in public policy and and engages somehow that suddenly faces the prospect of retribution from from a government committee saying, we want to know everything that you've been thinking about this legislation and everything that you've been doing about this legislation dating back years. That sparked the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, one of the largest business lobbies in the country, to come out with a very strongly worded letter where even those who are supportive of this legislation were left uncomfortable with uh, that committee's plans. They have backtracked a little bit, uh, but it is still viewed as, as a bit of a fishing expedition. It still is going into some of the external correspondence. And one of the things that we are likely to see play out over the month of April is that there will be these hearings, a, a hearing, I believe, a hearing with Google, a hearing with Facebook. And then to, to your earlier point about um, some of the supporters of this legislation and uh, critics of the critics, um, we can expect some of them to appear as well as they are devoting several sessions to basically people who've been criticizing these companies elsewhere in the world to come and tell their story in Canada. Huh. 
Um, I wanted to go back to a point that you raised a little bit earlier, which is, you know, one of the the things about this bill and and the structure of it is, you know, it's it's paying organizations for links, but not all links, right? It is just, you know, news organizations that that qualify. Um, and, and one of the concerns that I have is once you've established that general precedent that you know uh, you can force companies to pay for links. I would imagine that lots of other industries will say, hey, wait a second, if you're setting it up so that these you know, companies with, with tons and tons of money have to pay for links to news organizations, why aren't they paying for links to us as well? Um, you know, is there any concern or any discussion of the idea that this would spread beyond just news organizations? Well, certainly I share, I share those concerns. Um, obviously, the media companies don't air it. And you know, just as, a, as an aside, you know, part of the problem with the debate in Canada is that when you've got media companies who are the beneficiaries of this legislation, and it's not just newspapers, it's broadcasters as well. In fact, a report by what's known as the parliamentary budget officer, someone who assesses the budget implications of government legislation, came to the conclusion that more than 75% of the revenues would be going to broadcasters, would not be going mm. to newspapers. And those are some of the largest companies in the country. It's our large telecom companies own many of the broadcasters or our publicly funded broadcaster, the CBC, would be incorporated into this along with lots of local radio stations. I mean, that's that's actually who the, the main beneficiary is. And the estimates they had were in the hundreds of millions of dollars. In fact, at one Senate committee hearing, we had one of the government uh, senators or a senator aligned with the government say that their expectation was this could go as high as 35% of the news expenditures of every news outlet in the country, uh, because that's wow. what it covers. Uh, right. More than a third of their news costs funded by these two companies, which I, I must say, I think actually creates a, a whole new set of risks if you yeah. basically turn over the viability of your news sector over to these two foreign companies. So that's where that's that's how broadly this expands from in terms of a cost perspective. But you're right about the the risk that I think emerges once you adopt a position that linking is a compensable activity, because you know what makes media so special. Like I know that yes, it is it it plays an important role in our society, and I'd like to ensure that it's sustainable as well. But so does health information. So does education information. And uh, we can point to any number of different kinds of information that are also important. And if you take the position that that linking is a compensable activity and where we're talking about linking to information that we view as valuable, that we want to make sure is available, I don't see really a principled reason to say that you stop at media. It actually mm -hmm. just becomes the starting point. Yeah, yeah. You know, another concern, and this this has come up in the U.S. context, and I'm curious if it's if it's shown up in in Canada as well, is that, um, you know, there there are a number of news organizations, and I would almost put the news part in quotes <laughs> uh, here in the U.S. that that you know sort of specialize in. I'm trying to think of the the most diplomatic way <laughs> of phrasing this, but, you know, I, I would argue sort of propaganda, um, just, you know, sensationalism, all sorts of areas of news that, that many people sort of find problematic or not sort of traditional acceptable levels of journalism. Um, and yet under the definitions in, in the bills in the U S many of those organizations would qualify. And there, there are good sort of 
press freedom reasons why you would lump those organizations in as well, rather than allowing the government to define who is and who is not a journalism organization. But there are concerns that this would lead to funding organizations that don't have particularly good journalistic credibility and quality in in their journalism. Is that an issue with, with the Canadian bill as well? It is. You know, I, I, I mentioned off the top that this started with a, an approach focused on newspapers and government support through this process known as qualified Canadian journalism organizations. And because the, those were tax measures, that brought in Frankly, the part of the, our our version of the IRS or the tax of the Treasury are you know our, our tax authorities who scoped out really detailed views about what it meant to be a qualified Canadian journalism organization. It also then created a structure for for approval. Even that proved controversial, and there were some entities that said, "Well, they, they don't want to be judged. They don't want to take government money, or they don't want to be judged by uh, this panel as to whether they count or not." And there have been rejections that. At times, have have raised concerns, but you know, once they decided to expand this in a much broader fashion, you get at least a couple of issues arising. One, you get, and I think I, I alluded to it, you get a whole series of literally hundreds of broadcasters who may not even be required to produce any news at all that qualify for this. They qualify simply by virtue of the fact that they have a license, and so the fact that they got a broadcasting license is now was added as one of as a potential criteria for qualifying as what's known as an EMB or an eligible news business. And so that kind of changes the the connection between this and the production of news altogether. Suddenly now you're just saying, well, no, it's a subsidy program and we're going to subsidize these entities as well. But then there is a whole middle ground of or another criteria where you get into lots of other businesses or news news businesses. And there is that question about, well, what criteria do you establish? The legislation envisions an establishment of a code that helps identify who might qualify and who might not, and that hands new powers over to our broadcast regulator, over to the CRTC. And the broadcast regulator has never had an involvement in this way, certainly in basic newspapers, to to make these kinds of decisions. And it has been over the years a, a fairly controversial government entity. It's the Canadian equivalent of the F- FCC. And I think that there are many that are that are that question whether or not it is sufficiently arm's length, whether or not we can trust the, uh, a process that comes out of this. And yet, part of the you know the almost the inevitable result of a legislation that is framed in this way um, is that you have to start getting into some of that kind of those kinds of decisions. And all I say, I mean, listen, there are some people who op- oppose the mandated payments altogether. They simply say no. Uh, they're successful. You know, these companies have had have developed good ad models. Good on them. If you've got concerns, let's say from an antitrust perspective, and, and many of those issues have been raised, then that's the appropriate avenue to deal with it. If you've got concerns with privacy, and Lord knows there are reasons to have concern about how our data is being used, that's the mechanism to deal with that. But yeah, essentially, taking an approach where you want to profit off what may be these kind of questionable activities by funding your policy objectives. You know, in some ways, it, it, the incentive is to is to not rein these activities in because <laughs> you've turned these companies into a bit of a policy ATM, and you just want to withdraw the cash. So That's I think right. there are these these real concerns that that come out of that. Um, But that's roughly where we find ourselves, where the government has had to now establish some of these criteria, and they could have, I think, adopted other approaches, even if they were committed to say, well, we want to see 
more participation and more support coming from Google and Meta, Google and Facebook. And there were ways to do that without the kind of implications for the internet and linking that we've been talking about, without the implications for uh, an independent press, uh, and without some of these questions about who gets supported and who doesn't. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't even I hadn't even thought about the idea that it's sort of, you know, it, it creates a weird incentive for the government to crack down on actual problems, um, which I think we agree that there are some problems with these with these large companies. Yeah, um, well, you know, Mike, sorry to interrupt, but you yeah. know, we see this in, in Canada in a number of different places. We're we're jumping on the TikTok banning bandwagon uh-huh. here too, and we've seen that in a bunch of places. And so you get on the one hand, government ministries that say they want to ban TikTok, and you have on the other the heritage ministry that says. That TikTok is at the foundation of the future exposure and discoverability of Canadian creators. And so we want them to pay into the system and display more Canadian content, though we don't want any of our employees to actually have access to TikTok while they're doing it. That's incredible. Um, you know, one of the other issues that's come up in the, in the U.S. Uh, on this is that, you know, a lot of especially local uh, newspaper organizations and certainly also some local broadcasters um, in recent years have been purchased and, and rolled up into larger organizations, often run by hedge funds um, who have a long history of basically recognizing that these companies, if you strip them to the bone in terms of getting rid of many of the journalists and centralizing all of the administrative uh, work and running, you know, Reuters and AP reports rather than doing actual journalism themselves, that they become sort of cash cows for these these owners. Um, and there is some concern that that all that will happen with these kinds of bills here in the U.S. is that it will just go straight into the pockets of these these hedge funds that are extractive rather than actually adding to journalism. I know that the the California bill, which we haven't really spoken about, there's a California version of this bill, also does have a provision that claims, though it's questionable how it would actually work, that 70% of the revenue would have to go to pay actual journalists. Um, but is there a concern about how this money is then used by the news organizations in Canada as well? Yeah, there's a couple of concerns that come up both with how the, how it's used and the implications for smaller and medium-sized and online uh, news entities. In terms of how it's used, we we share some of the share some real similarities there. One of the largest media chains, largely owned by by U.S. based hedge funds, um, and so the the expectation is frankly that all you're really doing is is benefiting bondholders as opposed to right. actually funding journalism. And while if the if there are agreements struck outside of the arbitration process, one of the criteria that the, that approve for the approval of those agreements that would go to the CRTC would be some of those kinds of impacts in terms of spending. Um, it's not clear, there. There are no certainly no numbers. It's strictly associated with it, and and some are have have some expectation that unlike say a tax based model that we've been using in terms of tax credits for labor journalism expenditures, which goes directly to that question, um, this one does not. And if we end up with a a system where it, it literally is, let's say thirty five percent of all your news ex- expenditures, you know that's an uncapped liability for for linking because of course now it's open to someone to decide you know how they're going to structure their structure their structure their newsroom how they're going to hire and it, you know in some ways sure they might hire lots or they might kind of use different mechanisms to try to fit within the framework so that the kind of payout that they get becomes bigger and bigger 
But I think there's there's also an element here in terms of small and medium sized businesses, many of whom were were generally opposed to this legislation, uh, at least mm-hmm. initially. Many of the digital players were uncomfortable with it. You know, they 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 pointed to the fact that their business models often relied upon uh, SEO to be uh, to be found on search for sharing. I mean, they're the ones often doing the posting of their links on Facebook, hoping it gets shared, hoping to develop an audience, and so they were pretty uncomfortable with it. Many of them shifted over time in part because they felt that if this was going to happen, they had no alternative but to get involved. And mm-hmm. this, I think, comes to the to a point that the, the government had tried to make. They said, you know, we're not going to intervene in this marketplace. And yet this legislation is incredibly interventionist in the marketplace. Right. It quite literally forced hundreds of new news entities to get into this political game to see whether they qualified or didn't and participate because if they fail to do so, suddenly they're at a significant competitive disadvantage relative to some of the legacy players. You know, I, right. I was talking to talking to one who noted that, you know, it, it's hard enough that in many of their markets, they compete with the public broadcasters, their primary competitors. So they're in small communities. It's often our public broadcaster that the, that's their primary competitor. So it's public tax dollars that is their primary source of competition. And he said to me, listen, I can live with that competition. But if I've got to compete not with a public broadcaster that is now funded both by the public and funded by Google and Facebook, I don't have a chance. And so right. I've got to get into this. And so it, the government, far from having taken a hands-off approach, has has created a, an unprecedented level of intervention into the news marketplace in Canada. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of funny how, like, uh, and, and you know this well, where, like, uh, people who are opposing uh, opposing these regulations are often accused, mostly falsely, of you know uh, being paid off by the the big internet companies, and um, it's it's kind of a r- ridiculous slur. And yet, the whole point of these bills is to like force Google and Facebook to pay off <laughs> these news organizations, who then insist that they'll they'll still be able to cover these these organizations fairly. Um, I find that to be. <laughs> Uh, somewhat ironic, I guess. Um, I think it's. I think it's more than ironic. It's. It's yeah. the. It's the lived experience in Canada where the coverage has been incredibly skewed. Um, we had just this. Just this week, as we record this, the publisher of one of the of the largest, I think, circulating paper in the country, the Toronto Star, give a series of speeches talking about how Google and Facebook are stealing um, his content. And not even disclosing the fact that his paper has deals with both Google and Facebook. (laughs) And you see that all the time in the coverage that you get from, especially on the editorial side. You know, I think reporters, uh, we've good reporters on these issues and I think they cover it fairly. But in terms of how these issues are generally presented to the public by way of uh, editorials and op-eds and opinion pieces, it skews almost entirely in one direction. And, uh, and, and, and I think that has an important, I think it's an important element in terms of what it means to have the government get involved in this way and how, if one of the goals is an independent press, uh, uh, this kind of legislation actually directly undermines that goal. Yeah. There, there's a point that I hear a lot, um, and it sort of gets to these 
bizarre claims of like stealing content or whatnot, um, that w- when I'm talking about these bills, one of the things I hear often in response is something along the lines of, sure, Facebook and Google are only posting links, uh, headlines, and maybe a snippet. Um, but often that is enough. So people only read the headline and the snippet and never actually click through. So it's not actually sending any traffic. And that is why uh, there should be compensation because it's not actually sending enough traffic and and it's you know stealing which is ridiculous but but you know taking the essence of the article and the most important part and therefore depriving the the news organizations of the traffic that somehow I guess they deserve to have magically gotten otherwise um, I have a response to that but I'd love to hear what what your thoughts are on that on that argument because it keeps coming up when when I have yeah it does come up. It- it does come up. I mean, I guess I, I have a couple of thoughts on it. First, first, I think that there has been a commoditization of basic news. I think that's generally a good thing. I think we want people to have access to the news and to be, you know, as informed as possible. And that puts more pressure, of course, on media outlets to provide some amount of value add that it is worth the click and it is worth paying for. And so if all you're doing is running wire service copy and you're frustrated that you're not getting what you think is your fair share of click throughs on that kind of basic level of information, then I think you do have to ask the question, well, what what value add are you actually providing? But even beyond that, let's I'll, I'll take it as a given that oftentimes there, there is some value there. If it is the position that the entities feel they are not getting their fair share, what they view as a sufficient amount of referral traffic to justify the sharing, they can stop the sharing. And, (laughs) and so I, and, and I, and, you know, and I, I realize that's, that's not what a news entity wants to do. That's not what anybody wants to do. I think we generally want to be read and want to be seen, but if, if there's a determined, if, if they're determined to make this a purely economic calculus to saying you're not driving enough traffic to us, um, and so we think you should be paying for the, basically for that privilege of driving traffic to us and you don't do it enough. So now you have to pay extra. Well, if you think you're, you're losing out based on people gaining access to a snippet of your stuff and not ultimately kicking through, then stop sharing. But what we right. actually see on a site like Facebook is that it's the media companies themselves that are often the ones that are posting the initial links. They are incur- actively encouraging their users to share it online. We get those little widgets that occur- that we see there uh, all the time. And so it's quite clear that they must feel that there is some amount of benefit associated with, otherwise they wouldn't. And then I suppose ultimately, if they're saying that links don't, the link traffic that they're getting doesn't really matter, then I don't understand why they would be so concerned if, Facebook stops the sharing of links on their site because they're basically saying that the removal of that sharing of links will be inconsequential to their business. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is really incredible. I mean, your, your response was basically my response as well, which is that it makes no sense when, when viewed in, in actual context. And, you know, really in some ways when, when the news organizations make those claims, to me, it sort of highlights that they recognize how little value that they've added and how little they've done to actually build up sort of, you know, brand recognition and reader loyalty. You know, there there are certain publications that I know are very thorough and careful. And if I see a headline from them, I'm going to want to click through because I want to see the the depth and the 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 content and and the added value. But if they're just running the same, you know, wire service version as everybody else, then maybe that's the reason you're not getting clicks. It's not because Google and Meta exists. It's because you haven't done anything to earn those clicks. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in Facebook's case, 
I, I think that, you know, there've been multiple reports that, well, Facebook says that news is just a, at this stage, a, a trivial part of the overall fee of people, user fees, about 3%, right. 3 to 4%, they say. Um, so it's, it's pretty clear that they have been de-emphasizing links over time. And I think some in the media have been frustrated by this, but uh, there is an element that you know what? I, it, it's crazy to find myself having to defend Facebook on some of these issues. <laughs> uh, and, and I have to say that, you know what? It, perhaps we're all better off if Facebook really does get out of the, the new sharing business. And I, and I think that's true for the public where we see um, a lot of stuff that, that is not worthy of sharing and that may really raise issues of misinformation out there. And so all the better if that stuff is is gone. And from the perspective of some of the underlying media organizations, if they do develop the brands and the direct traffic and they don't do it mediated through that particular social media service long term, that probably leads to healthier companies as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's definitely true. So what, what is the, the status of the, of C18? Uh, you know, what happens next? How, how long is this process going to take? Yeah, no, it's a good question. So the bill has passed the house of commons, um, and it did not get uh, a ton of attention, quite frankly, <laughs> notwithstanding my best efforts. And <laughs> so, and I appeared a couple of times before the committee, I was happy to do so, but ultimately it has passed the house. It's now at our Senate. Uh, if the last sort of internet related bill, Bill C-11, the one involving user content is an indication, we should expect, I think, more robust hearings at the Senate. The Senate is less partisan. Uh, there are a number of former journalists who are senators who are on the committee that will study this, and they've indicated they, some are concerned with the legislation and they want to ensure that it gets a proper hearing. The sort of the question then becomes that even with those hearings, you know, what's the, what's the end result? It's possible that the Senate will propose some amendments. I think it is a very unlikely that they would propose sweeping changes to the legislation such that they would do away with linking, but I suppose you never know. Uh, if they do make changes, it would then go back to the House of Commons for uh, approval, and it would be open to the government to accept or reject. And 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 sort of you can then get into a bit of a ping ponging back and forth until both sides reach agreement on the same legislation. Although the Senate is typically loath to. Uh, go back and forth very much. Um, in the words of uh, one of a truly fabulous senator, Senator Paula Simons, uh, she says, "You know, we ping. You know, the the reference sometimes is that we ping, but we don't pong. So we can <laughs> ping back. Um, they can they send back, and then that kind of may end it. And we're going to see how that plays out with respect to Bill C eleven, which uh, just as we record this has passed." The, a revised version in our House of Commons. And so the Senate will decide whether to pong back or simply accept it, <laughs> even though the government rejected their most important amendment. And then with respect to this bill, Bill C-18, um, I guess it, it remains to be seen, but it will take a, a number of months. And then after that, there are processes that a regulator will have to get engaged with before this actually takes effect. But uh, the most important stage really at this stage will be that that Senate review and the prospect for some amount of amendment. All right. Well, um, good to know if, if slightly frustrating <laughs> is, uh, is there anything else? Have, have we not covered anything that is important to discuss regarding C18 and all of this? No, I think this was, this was a good conversation. It's, it's nice to have the chance to sort of get into sort of both some of the, the granular specifics that's, that, that can be found within the legislation, as well as some of those bigger picture sort of market based issues. And so, uh, so it's a, a real pleasure to have the chance to come on your podcast to talk about them. 
Yeah, no, thank you very much. Thanks for for taking the time. I know you've you've been covering all of the details of the bill. And uh, if you don't follow uh, Michael Geist, he is uh, on Twitter and on Mastodon uh, and posts on his own site as well uh, and continually is covering all this stuff and keeping me up to date on all of it because it is difficult to keep up to date on all the attacks on the internet around the globe. So I appreciate that. I appreciate the time that you've put into this and I appreciate you taking the time to join us on the podcast as well. Awesome. Thanks so much, Mike. Thank you. And thanks everyone for listening and we will be back next week. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get